welcome to the Bitcoin Worldview podcast. This is episode five, where we talk about why there is a world. We have with us uh, Marcus Edwards, who is someone who I met on Twitter, the great network tool. And uh, we struck up a conversation and I found out that he has been studying uh, science. He will tell you a little bit more about that. And he is interested in Bitcoin interested in Bitcoin. He's always also a thinker and uh, I highly enjoy interacting with people that uh, think about the big questions of life like we are talking about on this podcast. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Marcus and we're going to keep a similar format of about 90, oh, about 45 minutes uh, presentation before we move into a conversation. So over to you, Marcus. Okay. Thank you, August. Thank you for the High praise. Yes, it was fantastic to to meet you on Twitter as well and see what you're doing with this podcast. It's very exciting. I think there's a lot of synergy between, as we talked about in the last episode, um, between yeah these different worldviews and how that extends into metaphysics and that type of thing with how we conduct ourselves and with how we conduct ourselves in economics and with Bitcoin and that type of thing. So it's a very worthwhile conversation to have, I think. So I'll just give myself a little bit more of a background than you did. Basically, yes, I finished my master's degree in 2020 studying quantum information at the Institute for Quantum Computing, University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. So my background is as a physicist, mainly. Only have my master's, so I'm, I'm still just a baby physicist, I guess I would say, but very much that's my perspective. I enjoy reading as well on some philosophy and... For example, my father growing up was a professor at a Bible college. So that's also sort of baked into my background and my perspective a little bit. Yeah. So what I'll talk about from the perspective of sort of a physicist and quantum information, uh, Christian, and with a bit of a theological background as well, is why there's a world and how that connects to how we conduct ourselves and some of the ideas that were brought up last week. So here goes. It's a, it's a big topic. and I'm going to hit on a lot of different pieces that could probably be expanded a lot. And I'll probably shy away from a few of them where I'm not necessarily an expert, <laughs> but we'll, we'll start with, uh, we'll start with the physics. So basically from the perspective of a, of a quantum information scientist who has worked in and around cosmologists and uh, astrophysicists a little bit, I wanted to start with a little bit bigger scope than why is there a world in terms of planet earth and and discuss, okay, why is there a universe and or a environment in which we could expect Earth and life and these things as we know them to emerge? Essentially, I think it's important to start there because when we talk about life and we talk about our world, it immediately begs the question why the universe is fine-tuned for life to exist and to thrive as it does on earth and that is a question that has been debated and discussed and presented endlessly both in academia and in apologetics work i know that the fine-tuning of the universe is a common defense for faith because it really does open up the question of intelligent design and it does bring up this idea which is largely unanswered of us being here because of some very finely tuned parameters of basically 
uh, cosmic inflation and how general relativity works, the cosmological constant, among others. So basically, if we're going to believe that we're here because the universe is fine-tuned and that is basically generally accepted, the question for why we're here becomes why is the universe fine-tuned at one level? And that brings us back to sort of the beginning of the universe, which was with either a singularity that, that was, was pre-inflation, we had a singularity that was this extremely hot, extremely dense universe. And the idea is that, actually, I was reading, I've been reading a few books on this, and there was an interesting observation that there's an entire sort of perspective and group of physicists who, who see the singularity at the beginning of the universe and think, aha, unification really, really vibes with our Christian beliefs that there's a God behind the creation of the universe and that kind of thing. And so it's not a new idea at all. But there's also competing ideas I was going to mention that there's, you know, maybe a universe before the expansion, which led to the evolution of our universe existed, that type of thing, hotly debated. And we don't know yet is, is the scientific answer is it's open to debate and requires further scientific discovery. And the reason for that is simply that we can, we can look with scientific instrumentation and with data collection from astronomical observations so far into the Big Bang. That's because when we look at the cosmic microwave background, we are actually able to see light that's left over from the Big Bang. Because if you can imagine inflation of this really hot, really dense singularity, which was actually the entirety of our universe at one time, expanding and expanding to become all space, which is still expanding, right? Light from that original, that original time, like pre-Planck era, is still propagating and reaching us from different corners of the universe. And so if we look in the right place, we, we see the cosmic microwave background and we see the light from the beginning of the universe. That I've just been, I've been reading more about in uh, Katie Max, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking book, by the way, and it's, and it's really fun. So I recommend it. Yeah. So, I mean, that is sort of just like a, an introduction to where the discussion is in terms of cosmologically, why, why are we here? I wanted to discuss one interesting facet of that, which is sort of, I'm not going to go into like the GUT era or inflation too much. I mentioned unification. So there's the idea of a grand unifying theory, which would combine our three fundamental forces besides gravity, which is necessary to study study physics when things are so hot and so dense that fundamental forces combine in a way. And I'm not going to really talk about theories of everything where we also try to throw gravity into that mix. But what I am going to talk about is the reason we have galaxies forming the way they do in our universe, the reason we have the conditions that we do for life um, at this macro scale actually connect back to very small density variances in that original hot, dense universe. And those density variances are actually due to very small quantum fluctuations. And so at the end of the day, this entire discussion really almost, and as a quantum information scientist, of course, I'm going to emphasize this, but, but it, it feels like it almost reduces to quantum information. <laughs> and with quantum information, there's a very rich debate on what it means, right? We have all kinds of interpretations of quantum information. And some of the most 
recent ones, including quantum Bayesianism, say that the state of a quantum system actually is tied very closely to the beliefs that observers, for example, have about that system. So if you observe it, and you observe it a million times, so a million people observe the same quantum system, the state of that quantum system, like the actual state, is going to be defined by almost like a consensus of what people have concluded about it from their observations, which is an interesting, an interesting approach to understanding quantum information in terms of actually being tied up with systems of belief, because it's one solution, one proposed solution to the observer problem, the, the observer paradox, right? Where if you don't observe a quantum system, it doesn't collapse. You don't know what value it has. And therefore, its value is tied up with the observer. Without the observer, the quantum system doesn't seem to behave in any way that would affect said observer, for example. So you can't model it without including yourself in the model is the typical problem. So if we have that same problem at the scale of the universe, you know, it's like, okay, well, are those fluctuations that defined the structure of our universe random? Or are they going hand in hand with some system of belief, right? And if, if they do go hand in hand with some system of belief or some, some belief, then whose belief, right? And so, you know, if these quantum fluctuations were occurring many billions of years before humanity and quantum Bayesianism or something like it does have insight into how quantum mechanics behaves, it brings up the question to me of whose belief is defining the universe, you know? And is there intent along with that? What's going on there? Because from a very strong interpretation of quantum mechanics, the behavior of quantum systems and the result of quantum systems is very strongly tied up with consciousness and an observer and belief. Yeah, so I think that's strong evidence at least to begin to think about, okay, maybe, maybe it's not an accident. Maybe there's actually some scientific evidence that there is something bigger than us that is conscious. And one talk on YouTube that I actually tuned into, when was this? A few years ago, presented the idea that basically the fine tuning of the universe may be actually consciousness tuning the universe and its parameters for life. And so almost this reflexive model was presented. This presentation was associated with the release of a biography of the physicist Bohm, Dr. Bohm. He had theories of quantum consciousness. I should provide a link to that. You know, touched on a lot of these ideas with experts from quantum phenomenology and consciousness all chiming in. I think it's a valid perspective to have in a debate about this, you know, but I don't know that there's strong evidence that humans are the center of the universe. <laughs> I think that sounds a little bit more like saying Earth is the center of the solar system and that kind of thing. So there's also a lot of philosophical debate in the same thing. And I don't know if it will be immediately obvious to you how this is similar. But yeah, I started reading the book, God's Not Dead, by Pastor Rice Brooks. August, you were, you were happy to lend to me and I was happy to pick up. And there was one quote in there so far that I read that I thought was good, which was, if God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. Right? And I think that is a strong philosophical statement. He was quoting Malcolm Muggridge. I think we're seeing a lot of that in terms of dynamics in 
discussions about physics, about philosophy, about being, about you know, morality, about how we conduct ourselves in society. And it does seem to be a fundamental tug of war. I might bring up some of the philosophy of Jung and Nietzsche, their perspectives in contrast to say biblical perspectives tend to emphasize, you know, in Nietzsche's case, culture as sort of having a, a more ultimate ontology. That was certainly my take when I read a little bit of Nietzsche. And Jung's certainly emphasizes humanity and our own perspective, right? Understandably from their fields. But but I think to take those things as universal is to kind of miss the point. These sort of voices in philosophy are, they're sort of rising in culture in terms of the debate that I see with Dr. Jordan Peterson, et cetera, talking about these things. And I enjoy those conversations very much, but there does need to be a bit of a check. It's good to understand human structures of belief, human consciousness, et cetera, but that is all in the context and should not be taking the place of God, right? From a Christian perspective, I think that that's a statement that I would like to hear as well, because fundamentally, as a Christian, if you're not having an idol, what that means is almost a metaphor for not putting things before God in terms of ontology in terms of your own life's alignment, in terms of what you worship and how you structure your life to achieve goals. Each of these is an important consideration. There's this idea I touched on very briefly about quantum Bayesianism, which is just an interpretation of quantum mechanics. You know, it's not like we can prove that it's more correct than another one, but it does convincingly tie it to belief. I've kind of said this bold statement of, okay, Let's think about now, not just a quantum particle and what we believe about that from our experiments and whatever instrumentation we have around that, but what if there's like some higher dimensional observer's paradox that encompasses like the entire universe is basically what I what I put forward here, which is pretty crazy, but, but it's not totally crazy because, and other voices are talking about this kind of thing a lot in, in culture right now. If you want to step up from quantum particles and quantum physics, there's analogs to how we work together and think together, um, come to consensus together, and the mechanics are not entirely different. There are some good analogs, is what I mean to say. So if we wanted to think of like a higher dimensional observer's paradox, for example, I might bring up the idea of omens. I would like to say that like omens don't actually exist unless you think they do, right? So similar to the observer's paradox, if a bunch of people see something and they each attach meaning to that, which provide some insight into the group consensus on something maybe that has been percolating in their minds, something subconscious, or even something that they've been actively debating consciously. Um, that attachment of meaning is actually a mechanism by which they can achieve consensus, right? So you can actually delve deeper into that and you say, why? Why do we think that, right? And so it becomes a method for self-reflection. And I don't know why, you know, God wouldn't wouldn't use that mechanism to, to help people sort things out. Um, I again want to separate out the idea of this pure reflexivity, saying that the person is responsible because there is actually an element of undirected thinking. There's an element of, I would say, the divine in um, how humans come together and see the world. And that's described many different ways by each different religion and that kind of thing. Um, one thing I really, really liked was reading a little bit about um, Quakerism. Quakers are, they inherit from Christian tradition and usually consider themselves Christian, but are open to like all kinds of different spirituality, usually will meet uh, to pray and have a very simple format to their services, basically. And my wife and I have attended a few of these. 
um, and always thought it was really great. And basically their um, idea or one of their foundational ideas is that there's like a spark of the divine in every person. And to me, that connects really brilliantly with, with the philosophy of basically reformed Christianity. Um, I've been reading a little bit about that. Uh, Herman Bavink, for example, is Christian worldview I really loved. And it's this idea that basically, if you look at the world, the external world, and just try to categorize everything, like in terms of dominance hierarchies and this kind of thing, via Darwinism and that type of idea, um, you're missing part of the point because you are a part of the, the system and God is actually a part of the structure of the universe that you inherit from as well. So there's, again, we talked a little bit about, I remember uh, Stefan last week talked about yoga and a bit about the, uh, we talked about maybe, it, maybe it's super being the stack of consciousness that he was talking about. Yeah, it's just recognizing that you are a bit more than just a Darwinian or just a physical agent in the world, you know, and these, that's only one dimension to what's going on here. There's actually more to consciousness than that. And it can come out in things like when we come together and think together and talk together, pray together, we get a bit more of that consciousness out um, because we are thinking about ourselves, both as individuals and as collectives. Basically, we are more than the sum of our parts when we do that. What it comes down to with this notion of coming together, having consensus, realizing we're more than the sum of our parts when we interact with one another and form community is we're, we're fighting the notion of like delusion with consensus, right? And what we have to do in order to, to understand that we are a community that is unified and in consensus about something is to interrogate that consensus from a shared moral foundation, I would argue, right? Otherwise, we may as well be in delusion. I was reading a, an article by Robert Breedlove the other day who wrote a little bit about how he thinks the, the, the mainstream, like the economic market is in a state of like delusion because basically he thinks money is like a, you know, extension of mind tool for us to communicate with one another and, and reach consensus about what's going on in the world and in our economic transactions. Basically, when you mess that up and it's not a perfect representation of the actor's uh, wills and their and their decision making together, then you no longer see things as clearly and you aren't able to have a healthy cognition as a community, right? This was his argument, basically. I thought that was a very good observation from one perspective. From another perspective, I think it was a little bit strong. I wouldn't go as far as to say that our entire economic market and, and everything has been ruined. <laughs> I'm not as strong a passionate Bitcoiner as that. There was a point to the perspective. My slight difference from that article is that I think it's actually a moral foundation with which we need to interrogate structures of consensus at all scales and, and not simply, uh, okay, my will is represented more than, say, like the government's, right? Well, I'm sure Mr. Breedlove would argue that that was a moral statement. And you know, maybe he's right. I don't know. Yeah, so if we're talking about mass consensus and whether that consensus is correct and worthwhile, I think it has to be held up against Jesus' teachings, right? Fundamentally. Fundamentally. And anything that inherits from Jesus' teachings is good, is good to go. So I think that just needs to be rooted in the knowledge that God is love, right? And that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And those are sort of the two things. The golden rule and to love God above all other things is the core of Christianity is the core of Christian teaching and is, is compatible with a whole lot. Those are pretty broad statements. Like all the law and the prophets are contained in these two teachings of Jesus. 
And so I don't think it's, you know, exclusivist to say you're a Christian or to bring a Christian worldview to economy, to any area of, you know, intellectual thought even, because basically these are the two things that we're claiming are the focus of our lives. If you're not able to love your neighbor as yourself and you do value yourself or um, your company or whatever, more than God who is love, then there's a problem, right? And it's just about aligning those things. Philosophically, what those two things do, I think, is make sure that we're not ever sacrificing the individual for this idea of like the greater good. We should never do that. We should always love our neighbor as ourselves. And it also makes sure we don't do the other way. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is to love neighbors as yourself. If you're saying, I'm loving God by changing society in this in this way, but it's going to actually cause harm to individuals, then you need to step back. That's the idea. And if you were sacrificing the greater good for a person, you also need to step back. Fundamentally, I think that message is in there. Oh, yes. I did think there was this fantastic quote from, from Mr. Breedlove, which I, I should give him some credit because this article is actually pretty good and got me thinking a lot. And he wrote that the anatomy of any system has to contain within it a model of the environment in which that system is immersed. And that is you know, exactly what I'm talking about with, with all of this about consensus, about consciousness being in a system of basically supervenience where you have physical brain, then you have the mind, and then you have the spiritual realm, which we conjecture is above that, right? And it's very much that idea from which we get the statement that we're more than some of our parts, a group is more than some of its parts, and where we can connect to some of the reformed theology that I mentioned. So to bring it all the way back around, I really love this old idea from the inception of modern science, if you could call it modern, in medieval Europe. But there is this continuity since science sort of sprang up in medieval Europe to now. And that was largely started because people believed that to understand reality was to glimpse the mind of God. The idea was that if you believe in a creator, right, an intelligent design and this kind of thing, which they actually believed in first before they had science to, to back it up, then it would make sense for the universe to be intelligible, for it to have laws, right? For there to be general relativity and quantum mechanics and all these things that we could figure out. Like, I personally believe that that is true and, and literally true that, you know, when we are studying science and the universe, that we are learning a bit about the mind of God because he created it this way for a reason. And that is an expression of his character, right? And that used to be a very common view. A little bit unusual to say these days, but I think it's consistent. And you know, and it, and again, it doesn't exclude. I don't think the secular worldview too much. I think it's it's compatible insofar as a Christian can say, "I'm doing science for this reason," which is in awe of God. I want to know more about Him. That's more like a posture, a postural thing. So functionally, you might see a scientist who claims to be Christian and one who claims not to be Christian. You know, studying the same things, doing the same things, building the same experiments, etc. It's just the Christian will say, you know, wow, that isn't about me. That's about something amazing, um, about someone amazing who makes this all worthwhile, right? Uh, whereas, this, whereas a secular scientist may not have reached that conclusion yet. And that's fine. So, yeah, just a little bit more of a stronger argument, maybe, because I've sort of painted this picture now of some of my basic beliefs about, you know, how God and consciousness tie together to give us this idea that there is someone bigger out there. Um, something bigger directing the evolution basically of the universe and i would argue evolution of you know guided evolution has been debated hotly in terms of um, uh, biological evolution and that kind of thing and i think that the analogy holds 
basically, the question is to me, from the perspective of a scientist thinking about the beginning of the universe, what came first, the Earth or the Big Bang? Right? It's like humans did not come first. You know, it's very clear to me that we are not the creators of the universe. Right? <laughs> so it's not us reflexively tuning the universe and and saying, okay. We want to live, so the whole universe is going to range around us and that kind of thing. I just think that's nonsense. So you just have to maintain some concept of scope and scale. And I don't know, I can't simply make the argument perhaps to some very savvy physicists who are going to, to, to argue uh, that time is, is virtual and we live in a Minkowski space time that's actually where, where events can be observed in different order, depending on where you're sitting and looking at them because of general relativity and this kind of thing. Yes, uh, that's true. But we talked a little bit about, even in the last podcast, there's two ideas, prevenience and supervenience, right? Um, I think prevenience uh, is a decently strong argument for you know what, what I'm talking about here, but we can go to supervenience as well. If it's literally an information density issue, right? Your mind can't contain knowledge of the entire cosmos right now. <laughs> you know, so I could ask you exactly where Oumuamua came from, for example, that asteroid that people are talking about, and you don't know. <laughs> so you have less information about that than exists in the universe and is literally recorded in reality, right? A reality that is patterned very much like your brain in some respects. It's literally an information density issue, which calls back again to that great quote that Mr. Breedlove brought up. The anatomy of any system has to contain within it a model of the environment in which that system is immersed. The complexity of that model is part of the question, right? Um, our brains are adapted to the universe, not the other way around. You know, us being adapted to our environment rather than the other way around because of the complexity of the structure and the scope of the structures in our brains, for example, versus in, in the reality around us. You know, it's a useful way to think because it also, you know, gives credence to observations about say like structural injustice and that type of thing. Those are real problems that have to be solved. And I just wanted to say as well that just the idea, you know, that God is the architect of reality, et cetera, in a way that's much bigger than us, does not mean that like structural injustice, et cetera, is somehow part of God's ordained ar architecture of reality. I was worried that that might be, might be something that people would infer if I, if I presented this world without bringing it up. Um, so I thought I'd just, quickly introduced Genesis 1, which tells us that basically we're morally responsible for ourselves. And um, that because we need God's helping hand to guide us to stay sort of in tune with him, that's why we have like the Bible and religious teachings and this type of thing, moral teachings to keep us on track. It's because we needed that, because we did go off the rails. It's a give and take, right? It's not that there's a super deterministic reality where we have no decision-making power whatsoever. And it's not that we are the center of reality and everything conforms to us. It's very much why you'll often hear Christians say it's about a relationship with God, right? That Jesus is a person that you, you can know. It's about knowing what it means to be in this universe, to value your neighbor and to value God who is love, right? That's a very relational set of rules, right? It's not about do these things and you'll be good. It's all about that relational aspect. And, and that's because love is purely relational, right? Yeah, and I, I've written a blog post as well about how I think that the fundamental message of Jesus interpreted sort of in this way uh, is also 
a part of the fundamental hope that humanity has for long-term survival in terms of like uh, not being self-destructive um, through like self-destructive behaviors like war and this type of thing. There is a strong connection, I think, to flourishing and to the message of the Bible at all scales of society. And that as long as you're valuing love over hate, you actually come closer to guaranteeing long-term survival. And so that's connected to the question of why is there a world as well? More in terms of why will there continue to be a world <laughs> is, you know, if we can conform to this intended trajectory of, of evolution for humanity and, and for the universe, then what we'll end up doing is following those two, those two rules, I think. And that will sustain us into the future. And, and uh, I think that's, again, not a new idea, to say the least. That's, that's a very old idea. Yeah, so I was going to go into a little bit of how that stands opposed to certain worldviews, right? Like, sure, you, you can just say, um, you know, just love everybody and love God and everything will be fine. And that's true, but it stands in opposition to, other, to certain other worldviews that occasionally have momentum, right? And so to be a Christian isn't simply just to, to give up and say, okay, I'm not going to be involved in politics. I'm not going to talk about these things. I'm not going to, you know, defend my worldview because it's important to do that. For example, I think the message of Jesus stands in opposition to, you know, fascism, for example, very strongly, which basically values the individual not at all compared to, you know, the state. And so it's like, first of all, that's an ontological problem. And second of all, that is like totally in opposition in what it leads to with the message of the Bible in terms of loving your neighbor and loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we know that from what happened, right? And that's, that's what we have to avoid. The voice of the church can't be timid in Nazi Germany. The church had to be silenced and or conformed because the message was completely incompatible. The voice of the church, it has to be strong in its defense of its beliefs because they are important. And I gave an extreme example, but they're important in the everyday as well. And that brings me sort of to this quote, which I think is really powerful by Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I should say which is, so the question is not whether we'll be extremists, but what kind of extremists we'll be. Will we be extremists for hate or love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? And I think that just captures the spirit of the message of the gospel just so well. Um, and there are these movements that are, again, political and connected to other things that, that really just, I think, are expressions of that gospel message again and are worth holding on to and are worth defending and are worth studying and understanding. Okay, so I've tried to integrate a whole bunch of different wide topics of ideas here. Yeah, you've given us a lot. You want to add something, or are you are you wrapping up? Or I am wrapping up. I'm just I have a few more notes, and I'm just trying to decide how to wrap it up here. I want to just say that I think that you know, for example, with Bitcoin, I think it's a really cool movement that just recognizes that healthier economic systems are possible, right? And that's the connection there. I think that healthier systems are possible in all respects, almost really, right? And that and that Bitcoin is is one one arena where uh, it's possible to have a better system. Um, I've personally never owned Bitcoin. I've sort of contributed to some of the theory in terms of blockchain technology and that kind of thing. So I, I have a bit more of a heady heady perspective on it, um, but that's okay. I think I think I'm I'm happy to hang out with with Bitcoiners of all kinds. <laughs> And yeah, and I I'm, do want to just say that I'm excited about like technologies and tools that can be used to build healthier, healthier systems of interacting with another, including economic systems, and that it's really worth working on. 
And that I think that there's a possibility that a lot of different perspectives can come together when we value consensus and when we value just being good people to one another, you know, and not being full of ourselves. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. If you really want to boil it down and I'll just end it like that. Great. You've given us lots of stuff to think about. I made some notes and uh, questions. Thank you, Marcus. I'm going to switch over to uh, having some Q&A and conversations. I have plenty of questions, but before I dive in, uh, anyone else wants to start with any questions or comments? If not, I'll, I'll dive into my first one. When we go back to the question of why a world, what I understood from you, you were talking about how an observer is looking at the quantum uh, model, so to speak. Did I understand you right that you were saying that in a way, the, the belief of the observer defines the state of the model? Is that what you said? Sure, sure. So there's lots of different interpretations of what's going on there. And that is one perspective. So the one you learn the most in school is called the Copenhagen interpretation. That tries to build pure randomness into the model of quantum information. So each time you look at it, you may get a different result. Um, and they argue that is you know, purely random and actually physically random. Um, so an opponent voice to that in the discourse is quantum Bayesianism, which says, okay, actually the high dimensional state that precedes your observations can be reconstructed from your observations, right? And that's a, that's a scientific fact. And they go to one step further to say what that means is that the state is actually defined by your observations. And that is... Yeah, again, just shifting the ontology a little bit, right? Shifting the ontology a little bit to, to say that it is the interaction with the observer that helps define what the state is. Okay, that helps. So is it fair to say that you're saying that the big is explained by the smallest? Yeah, quite literally. I mean, it is theorized that the, the actual structure of our universe to galaxies and galactic filaments and all of that is actually prevened by the structure of quantum fluctuations in the early universe that created different density patterns in the singularity and uh, the early universe. Yeah, quite literally. So the big is explained by the smallest. And, and by what you were saying earlier, you were talking about if you have a being or, or a person, in a way, defining that state of the of the of the smallest. The smallest really is reflective of that person that is defining it, so to speak. So to speak. Yeah. yeah. Not okay. an exact, I think I, I take it as an analogy, right? I, right. I think these ideas are so big, right? And if we're going to talk about God, when we talk about him as a person, mm. it's so that it makes sense to us, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, we understand how to relate to a person, you know, and, and God reveals through the Bible and, and through Jesus to us that he is relational, right? Um, but the idea of him being a person is sort of a metaphor for that. Well, let's take a little rapid trail here. So with Bitcoin, we have energy becomes information, right? So the miners are, are spending energy to create information. So to be, you know, digital yep. information. So every, yep. every Bitcoin that you hold essentially is, is a piece of information. Yep. And our topic tonight is about how this 
thing, Bitcoin, actually starting to describe a new physical future in a way for humanity. Because yeah. as we start to use Bitcoin as money, which is information, it has an influence on, on how human humans behave and how we move the physical world around us. So in a way, Bitcoin is changing the physical world around us. Yep. So following that, if, if God created the world, it is fairly clear for most people that God has a lot of energy. And at least how the Bible describes him creating the world, God used words, right, to create the world. And words are essentially information, right? Sure. Okay. So uh, if you think about it, in the Bitcoin world, you can, you can remember 12 words, you know, to your Bitcoin wallet. And with mm -hmm. that, you are unleashing, uh, a, a, you know, amount of energy that is stored in that Bitcoin on that wallet. Mm -hmm. And you can essentially, that Bitcoin now is under your command and you can channel that energy the way you want. You can make it accomplish something. You can buy a car or you can buy a house or, sure, sure. you know, yeah. you can impact yeah. the physical world around you. Yeah. And we are really saying the same thing when we say God used words to create the world because he is unleashing energy on the world and, and making changes to the physical world. Do, do you see the similarity here? The, the oh, certainly, yeah. yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of language that, that like philosophers and theologians will talk about. I'm not, again, an uh, expert yet in, in theology or philosophy, but just sort of like a, uh, a fan. And I know like just from reading a few books that philosophers and, and theologians will, will typically talk about this in terms of um, effects and causes, right? And you can have original cause. And the argument for, one of the arguments for God is that, you know, he's the original cause uh, for all these things. So yeah, it's a cause and effect capacity you have to affect the world. And, and, you know, God is also called the unmoved mover, meaning nothing can change him. So somebody could convince you to sell your Bitcoin or something, but nobody can convince God to sell his Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, and outpouring of himself created the entire universe is the idea. And that's what it means. It means exactly that. This relationship between energy information and the physical world is just really fascinating in my mind. And uh, I think there's more to explore there. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is that uh, you were talking about if, if the humans are at the center of the universe. And I, I was asking the question in my mind, you know, who defines the universe? If, if we as humans put us as central, kind of like people in the, in the past put Earth as the center of the solar system, that model didn't work. You know, you, you had to add exceptions to explain the movements of the planets. And you had, you had to add a lot of exceptions until finally someone realized, actually, what if we put the, the sun as, at the center? Then all of a sudden things started making sense. So, so how you, what you put center has a big role in, in op optimizing your understanding of the world around you. Exactly. So... I, I start to think about this question, you know, who defines our universe? And then mm. who defines what money is? Because mm. those that have studied Keynesian economics, 
they will quickly see that central to the Keynesian economic is this thing of defining money as we want, you know, mm -hmm. really defying the natural laws and saying, I can just print money off my printer and there doesn't need to be any energy or real work behind it. And they go off creating all this elaborate theory around economics based on the printing press. I just want to kind of make the statement that when you define things that disconnected from physical reality, there's no energy or, or, or physical reality involved, that doesn't work because you, 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 you will crash the wall. And it's central to my statement there is that the physical world does exist and has certain properties. And that's another thing I wanted to kind of throw at you. Do, do you agree yeah. with that statement that the physical world actually does exist and yes, has oh, absolutely, yeah. certain observable properties? Oh, observe. So observable and unobservable, right? So yes. when you, when you yes. talk about observable properties, yeah, the whole idea of quantum classical correspondence, which is related to the interpretations of quantum mechanics I brought up is just how do those things connect the observable and the unobservable, but right. both exist for sure. There's no doubt. Right. 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 That's a great point. Yeah. Making a difference between what we can observe and what we cannot. My friend, Michael Gillen points out, you know, there's a high percentage of the universe that is dark energy and dark matter that is right. beyond our, our reach of, of seeing or measuring. And beyond that, if we take a look at the sky, we only see, you know, a, a small percentage of the light or, or the physical universe that is even um, observable to us at all. So uh, to make uh, objective statements about the world with the limited window we limited have. Limited view, yeah. Can yeah, be, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. Very good. Now, another thing I wanted to bring up is... Uh, and going over my notes here. Uh, yeah, you talked, uh, you referenced the commandments or, or commands from God a few times. Now, uh, that is not a very popular thing to talk about, especially in, in the country where I live. What would you say to someone who, who, who is listening to this and thinks to himself, you know, commands, they really take away my freedom. You know, what, mm. how can he make a case that, that the command is a good thing? Sure. Okay. So, yeah, that's sort of why instead of bringing up like the Ten Commandments, you know, I brought up Jesus and his words, which were the, you know, you might call them the two commandments, which was to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And the idea is that all the rest is encapsulated in there, you know, and that just comes down to not thinking you're the center of everything and treating other people well. And so if that's what God requires of you, you know, if that's all that God, like, I understand it can be hard for people to, to, to accept authority, right? That's hard for people, but it's very important because, because basically the claim that I would make is that as you know, Jesus was, um, the word made flesh as the Bible is God's word for us. It is in fact, his plan uh, for us, for reality, etc. that we learn to be good to one another. And, and that's something we just have to learn. And if you, if you can't do that because you don't like authority figures, 
I'm sorry, but you're going to have to learn to do it. Uh, <laughs> right. Do, do you think there is a relationship uh, between uh, the physical, the properties of the physical world around us and this topic? Um, you said earlier you agree with me that the physical world does exist and has certain properties uh, regardless yep. if we can observe them or, or, or not i'm fascinated by the idea that things like a command from god love your neighbor for example that this command helps us to work with reality as it really is for example you know bitcoin Going back to that, uh, Bitcoin works because the way it is designed, work is designed, works with the physical reality and the physical world as it as it really is. For example, mm. there's real work in every Bitcoin. It is not just made up stuff like we talked about earlier, and uh, that's one of the reasons why why it works. So, what if we take that? And, and, and think about a command from God when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. What if that is actually not only a, a nice thing to do, not only a good thing to do, as most people see, mm. but actually even more fundamentally hardwired into how the physical world around us works? Right, exactly. I think you're totally right. And, and that's why I tried to connect it a little bit at the end to, you know, the survival of humanity is connected to how we learn to work together. And it's, right. and I think that's true. You know, when you have, when you have behaviors that don't conform to that for whatever reason, they become self-destructive and, you know, you start a war, you, you begin a destructive cycle, you know, mm -hmm. for example, and it's not, and it's not something that's contributing to, to life. And it is something that is actually, you know, literally um, contributing to um, death in, in, at different scales right so it's like right. so you can have that same idea in like a friendship with one person you know right. if you are going to if you're going to want that friendship to continue to live you have to be a good person to that friend right and right. and so it's like and i think that generalizes as well yeah to economics you're gonna be you know uh not lying about what happened you know non-repeatability is a good mechanism to help that happen mm -hmm. so you agree on a non-repeatability mechanism in order to facilitate that type of interaction which is respectful you know um etc yeah connected yeah yeah and, I, and to take that one step further you know I, I actually i actually believe that that god has made the world in such a way that it guides us a little bit uh, to the right path you know you put your hand on the stove you get burned so you mm -hmm. try to avoid doing that right. so there's a level of if you if you if you operate or if you if you do stupid things uh you will hurt others and, and most probably yourself in the long run also so that is there's a little bit of a, a training wheels attached to our physical experience <laughs> yeah yeah i agree yeah would taking uh, another aspect of that that i've also thought about is would you say that based on what we just talked about how the the physical reality is uh, is in a way um uh, linked to our experience and linked to our how we behave would you go far as far to say that understanding the physical world around us uh, actually will help us understand how to behave 
or is it even easier to say uh, as you were saying earlier that that you were you were quoting that uh, the old guys from the 1400s or something where they say if you understand and explore the physical world you are essentially exploring the mind of god yeah i mentioned herman herman Babink. um i i was, I was also reading a book Christianity Defended that had some more good quotes on the same topic. Um, mm. That's one's by Michael Manto. But yeah. basically, yeah, I mean, there's there's different levels to it as usual, right? Which is you can understand science for science sake, right? And if you do that, you'll understand how to, you know, invent and interact with the physical world in a scientific way. There's also then the personal or, you know, spiritual way of learning which is a different way of learning. It's a different type of knowledge, right? So if you're going to glean that type of knowing, that type of knowledge from the same type of discovery process, you're thinking about it a different way. You're not thinking like there's like, it doesn't make sense to say, I understand, you know, the position of Jupiter at whatever time. Therefore I know what God wants for my life. <laughs> like that doesn't make right. any sense, right. but right. But if you're, but if you're looking at the scientific, you can, you know, understand astronomy, from one perspective of like, okay, it makes sense, you know, mechanically, then the way to, you know, know the mind of God a little bit more is to reflect, right. To reflect on it and to say, what does this, you know, nesting of scale and scope say about my importance mm-hmm. in the universe, you know, and, and, you know, I shouldn't be full of myself. About that thing. Yeah. Right. And even the fact that there's order to the universe, you know, yeah. that is yeah. actually yeah. an amazing thing that it is not, chaotic to the point that we cannot make uh, predictions about it uh, even going back to the episode where Dr. Gabe Bouts was talking about mm-hmm. the amazing ability of math to describe the, the physical universe around us which is mm-hmm. mind-boggling when you when you really dive deep into yeah. that yeah no for sure uh, very good uh, any any other questions or comments from anyone else who's listening in uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to say that this is really, really interesting. And uh, um, I just wanted to ask uh, about the being actors of uh, this consensus. You talked about actors of the consensus shared by the community and how, how also community um, ties into all of this thing. This is sort of uh, the point that I started to connect, you know, like the Bitcoin network also with this idea of community. And also from the sort of um, love perspective as well, you know. And uh, I basically want to tell that I've never had to think in this way. It was going from physics to like, you know, very philosophical stuff. And I'm just amazed, you know. I, I've been listening to you guys this whole time, and I just want to thank you. That's that's the. I don't have a question. Just I want to thank you. Cool. Well, thank you <laughs> for your comment. Yeah, appreciate thank that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, I I want to move a little bit, like a bonus question, into your field of quantum uh, mechanics. Uh, well, actually, before I do that, I have one other question because kind of tying it back into uh, via world and uh, you talked about Big Bang and uh, that's kind of the dominant theory and you talked about uh, fine tuning, which in my mind is kind of inseparable 
from the the big bang theory because if you really trace it from the beginning it's almost impossible or unavoidable that you have these numbers that were tuned right from the beginning and they are very very finely tuned i i read parts of martin dr martin Rees uh, six numbers book uh fascinating stuff but anyway my, i just wanted to ask you have you seen any strong alternative explanations uh, to the beginning or to the question why a world you know alternatives to the big bang theory something that that okay. is strong enough that actually it, it, it holds water that that uh, worth looking at I, I haven't seen any really but i'm obviously i'm not the physicist yeah i have this book right here i don't know if you can see um reinventing gravity it's called oh right john, you were mentioning that okay <laughs> by john w moffat hmm. um and I, I attended one of his lectures when he published this book. And uh, basically, its point is basically that he's a proponent of, of modified gravity, mm. uh, which is an alternative to dark matter and that kind of thing, mm. um, to explain why general relativity breaks down um, close to black holes and mm -hmm. at larger scales, right? But basically, the idea, the idea is that instead of introducing dark energy, dark matter, you would just reformulate gravity so that it it includes these effects um, that would explain the acceleration of the universe. Um, anyway, I won't go too much more into it, but yeah, one thing that it, that it um, is also consistent with is this idea that um, there wasn't one big bang. There's actually, you know, maybe a lot of them <laughs> that, that our universe is just one expansion among a bajillion that all just randomly occurred. Right. And, um, you know, people have tried to test whether that's the case by seeing if, you know, there's evidence that our expansion bubble, our universe has intersected with another one, this kind of thing, which would leave um, some kind of evidence. There hasn't been any astrophysical data that supported it. Um, and as an alternative to the Big Bang, I don't know that it's, you know, for the purposes of our discussion, to me, all it's saying is, okay, yeah, we know that these quantum fluctuations, you know, would have caused uh, variance in the density of the hot dense universe at the beginning of, of time for us. And we've already connected that to ideas that are strongly suggestive of a role of consciousness, in my opinion. I don't know why that wouldn't generalize, you know, if you're saying that, that quantum fluctuations are responsible for other um, expansions as well, then, you know, okay, yeah. well, maybe we're just, maybe we only see a little bit of the universe and we already know we only see a little bit of the universe. So when you, when we're having these conversations, obviously you, you, you need to remind yourself and I, I need to remind myself that at the end of the day, we have to work with the data that we have, you know, which is mm -hmm. the observable universe, what we can measure and the properties therein, you know, we, we we can't uh, really work with data that is that we don't have, and uh, you can theorize, and 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 lots of this is something you can't prove, but you can gather data, gather facts that that uh, yeah. So I, I just wanted to mention that. But I I wanted to ask you about uh, what is kind of your uh, favorite uh, uh, 
uh, unexplainable or, or mystical uh, property or, or field or theory in quantum mechanics? Oh, <laughs> my favorite theory in quantum mechanics. I was mentioning uh, quantum entanglement the other day, but obviously that's yeah. the, what, probably one of the more kind of uh, popular uh, theory. I found it fascinating, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I I'll bring, I, I really find quantum annealing really fascinating, which basically is, a, is an alternative to the approach that most quantum computation theorists and quantum computing companies like take to building quantum computers. Um, and nobody knows if it's better or, or whatever. But it's uh, but it's just this crazy alternative approach to understanding quantum computation that like is inspired by the cooling of metals and and this kind of thing about having an energized system uh, relax to an unenergized state that that corresponds to the answer to some solution you've encoded and anyway so it's it's fun because it because it made me think a bit more about um, you know oh yeah like you can have this information encoded in in an entire system that's not necessarily you manipulating the individual qubits, this kind of thing, and uh, so you know it helps you think in a different way, and I really like that. So <laughs> it's probably something I have a hard time wrapping my head around, but I, I did understand the kind of the quantum entanglement. But following that, you know, quantum entanglement is something uh, which we can, you know, I can buy a two thousand dollar kit even and, and measure it in my house if I'm if mm -hmm. I'm skilled enough. So it's something we can measure, but we can't really explain. If that you know, if that makes sense, but actually, with gravity, which we've been talking about a bit, uh, gravity is something that you can measure, and you can uh, explain the movements of planets, etc. But we don't really know into the finer detail what actually happens. You know, are there is there kind of communication between the objects that are influencing one another? Is there, is there any, do you follow what I'm saying? We, we use, and we, we talk about gravity all the time, but we can't really explain it down to the detail level, can we? Um, so again, it, the explanatory models and this kind of thing comes down to interpretation with, with everything. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, mm. it's a debate, not a, not a proof. Yeah, 100% with, with both quantum information and general relativity and really all the physics right <laughs> like like i was reading the other day about uh you know the statement that uh philosophy is dead it's like okay well actually no because philosophy is baked into how we interpret all the physics right just like yeah like philosophy is still very much alive because it it frames and informs exactly what we think physics means you know and right. you know theology is still very much alive because it informs philosophy in the same way so right right yeah and kind of saying philosophy is dead is kind of like writing in English. The English language does not exist because right. <laughs> saying philosophy is dead is a, is a philosophical statement. So it's it's kind of a it doesn't live up to its own uh, own standard. But but good point. Good point. Okay, we have a couple of minutes left, and I just want to perhaps end on because you you mentioned the gospel and you meant, mentioned so it's pretty obvious from your talk that that you are a Christian, uh, but you're also a scientist. And it seems by listening to you that there aren't, you're not at war with yourself <laughs> from those two, two um, um, worldviews, so to speak. Um, how, would you, uh, how would you summarize the gospel 
uh, in a short, concise way. Um, and we kind of wrap, wrap our episode up with, up with that. How would you summarize the gospel? Okay. So if I was explaining it to someone who's hearing it the first time, and there's not too much context that they have for it, I would probably quote a little bit. I would say, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And that God is love. And he did that, made that great sacrifice for each person, you know, and the fundamental message of the gospel, I think, is that, that there is this, this relational God who has demonstrated very much that you are loved, that each person is loved, and that we are called to understand and participate and, and enjoy that, that knowledge and to enjoy being in a relationship, right relationship with God. And that relates to um, how we live and how we treat others and all this kind of thing, which was given in the example of Jesus, which is in the Gospels. Good. Uh, as you were sharing that, I, I started to think again about information because Gospel literally means good news. Yes. Yep. Which, in essence, is the same as saying good information. Yeah, you know? uh-huh. and it takes us back to our our conversation prior, where we talk about the information that you have makes a lot of difference. For example, yep. if you know the twelve words to unlock your Bitcoin wallet, you have yep. access to energy that you otherwise do not have access to, Correct. and it completely relies on the information that you have. And that goes back to this idea that if you understand the gospel which is information, you have access to that information. And the claim of the gospel is that that actually will connect you to God, who is, among other things, a source of great energy. So again, there's a similarity there between accessing your Bitcoin wallet, which is stored energy, to accessing and having an interaction with God, who is energy. But on top of that, as you pointed out, God is a person and he is inviting us into a interactive, loving uh, relationship. And we have access to that relationship if we are able to receive, understand and act on the information. Absolutely. So, and and that, that would be a good introduction for to the gospel for somebody who is into Bitcoin, I think. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, any other final comments or questions from uh, some of our guests before we before we wrap it up? If not, then uh, I'm just going to uh, share that we have uh, in two weeks, we're going to record the next episode where the topic will be on the origin of life, which you actually mentioned. And that is a fascinating topic because every single living thing on earth is a collection of again information digital information encoded in its dna so we come back to the topic of information in a way and uh, bitcoin is like channeled or focused energy and the life is more complex but again also like channeled energy because life in a way goes opposite to what we would expect from the the conversation around entropy and how energy is just kind of uh you know spreading out thinner in the the, on the earth in the universe 
So that question and, and how we account for the original live, uh, Dr. Brian Miller, a good friend who's been here to Iceland, he's going to talk about that. Uh, he's he's a uh, absolutely brilliant guy. So uh, you want to join in on that conversation. But with that, uh, thank you for tonight. And uh, we're going to wrap it up. <laughs>